Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and rape that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Tokyo, Japan. On the afternoon of August 12, 1935, General Tetsuzan Nagata, Director of Military Affairs, was in his office when the doors suddenly burst open. Standing there with eyes like daggers was Lieutenant Colonel Saburo Aizawa. The two officers were on opposite sides of a schism that had infected the Japanese military for years. Nagata believed that men like Aizawa were far too extreme and dangerous, and he was determined to root their kind out of the military. Of course, all that did was make Nagata their prime target. Aizawa stalked into Nagata's office, drew his traditional samurai sword, and without hesitation, hacked Nagata to death. Face covered in blood, Aizawa patiently waited for the military police to come and arrest him. In his eyes, he had done nothing wrong, and the military court would see that. What Aizawa failed to realize was that Nagata's best friend was Hideki Tojo, a promising military careerist who mostly shied away from politics. And in the wake of Nagata's death, Tojo would be ordered to purge the army of the radicals. He would perform the task with extreme prejudice. In doing so, the historically quiet Tojo sent the Japanese army an alarming message. He had a ruthless side and he was ready to use it. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we've been looking at lesser-known World War II dictators who are allied with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. This week, we're going to do something a little different. To commemorate the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, we're teaming up with our friends at Conspiracy Theories for a four-part deep dive into the day that President Franklin D. Roosevelt said would live in infamy. Today, we'll examine the Japanese perspective as we dive into the life of Prime Minister Hideki Tojo. We'll explore how Tojo earned a reputation as the ruthless head of the military police in Manchuria, and how his dedication to Japan thrust him into power as tensions rose with the U.S. Then our friends Carter and Molly will look at the American perspective of the conflict between the two nations. They'll cover how wartime negotiations devolved and eventually escalated into a brutal ambush. After that, we'll come back with part two of Hideki Tojo's side of the story. And finally, Carter and Molly will look at a few fringe theories about what really happened at Pearl Harbor. We'll head to Imperial Japan right after this. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. 
Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Unlike the other dictators we've explored this season, Hideki Tojo was a name almost every American knew during World War II. As Japanese Prime Minister in 1941, Tojo was the man who gave the final order to attack Pearl Harbor, sending the United States into an excruciating island-hopping war in the Pacific. But while many considered him the face of pure evil in the Pacific theater, in fact, he was just a reflection of something larger, the centuries of harsh military rule in Japan. Since the end of the 12th century, Japan had been ruled exclusively by military dictators or shoguns. In 1192, a bloody civil war proved to the warrior class, or samurai, that the Japanese imperial family was too weak to maintain order. They ousted the emperor, leaving him as little more than a powerless symbol and installed warlords called shoguns. In the centuries that followed, shoguns rose and fell, creating eras of peace and chaos as competing clans fought for supremacy. The pattern culminated in 1603, when a feudal lord named Tokugawa Ieyasu seized power and finally united all of Japan. The government he founded ushered in the Edo period. During this period, Japan became isolated from the rest of the world. After Christian missionaries briefly entered Japan, the shoguns feared their influence and decided to sever all ties to the Western world. Instead, they would focus on strengthening their country from within. The plan worked. For the next 200 years, Japan was a non-player in global politics or economics. Outside of trade with China and Korea, the country was virtually trapped in a feudal time capsule, ruled by authoritarian shoguns and protected by the ruthless and arrogant samurais. But the country did remain prosperous and stable. At least until the 1800s, when cracks began to show. Internally, the merchants had overtaken the samurai in wealth and influence. This created tensions between the military government and the business class. Meanwhile, in 1853, an American commodore named Matthew Perry sailed to Japan and demanded that the government open its trading doors to the West. Fearing aggression by the navally superior Americans, the government capitulated. Western goods began entering Japan. The country got a taste of the technological advances of the 19th century, and two fears quickly arose. First, that Japan was behind the rest of the modern world, and second, that it was only a matter of time before Western imperialism dominated them. Hoping to project a stronger, more exalted face to the world, two influential samurai clans joined forces and demanded that the shogun hand power back to the emperor. The shogun relented, and in late 1867, 
Emperor Meiji was restored with imperial power. The Meiji Restoration, as it came to be known, ushered in a period of transition on almost every front. A new constitution created a bicameral diet or legislative body filled with military officers and elected civilians. Meanwhile, Japan underwent rapid industrialization. In the early 1800s, Japan's economy was still heavily agrarian. But with the help of Western technology, the country transformed into an industrial powerhouse. Ideologically, things shifted too. In order to unite the people, Meiji officials encouraged the ancient religion of Shinto, rather than the previously popular Buddhism. They didn't just want to unite Japan around a shared belief system. They wanted to use belief to encourage loyalty to the emperor. Shinto says that divine spirits, or kami, are found all around us in nature. Meiji leaders proclaimed that the emperor was a kami. Thus, he should be worshipped as a god. Japan also completely overhauled its military. It modeled its navy after the British, adopted a Prussian-style army, and did away with the more feudal and knightly samurai. After generations of power, millions of samurais were left wondering what was next for them. Among those lost warriors was a 16-year-old named Hidnori Tojo, father to Hideki Tojo. In 1871, Hidnori Tojo decided that his best chance at a good future lay with the Imperial Army, which, luckily for him, he was able to join. The Meiji leaders wanted to erase all memory of the samurai class's power, but they still needed fighting men, so they decided to allow lower caste samurai like Hidenori to join their army. In doing so, they inadvertently kept samurai values alive. The samurai were ingrained with Confucianism and the code of Bushido, or the way of the warrior. Evolving over centuries, the essence of Bushido included honor, integrity, benevolence, loyalty, and courage. The Bushido view on death was different than how it's typically seen in Europe. Warriors were taught not to fear death, but rather to welcome it. Assuming a warrior acted loyally to their feudal lord, there was honor in dying. Death by one's own hand was also seen as honorable. The ritual known as seppuku, or harakiri, involved a samurai taking his short blade and disemboweling himself. This was done either in deference to a fallen lord or to avoid a warrior's most humiliating fate, capture in battle. As the imperial army replaced the samurai as Japan's military elite, it absorbed the samurai warrior spirit and passed it down to the next generation of fighters like Hidenori Tojo's son, Hideki Tojo. Hideki Tojo was born in December 1884, and as the eldest surviving son in the Tojo family, he was expected to follow in his father's military footsteps. Unfortunately, he wasn't what many would consider a typical warrior. He had poor eyesight and was physically weaker than many boys his age. 
The young Tojo quickly realized this and did his best to excel where he could. Throughout his teenage years at military preparatory school, he focused on his studies and became extremely competitive. His efforts didn't make him popular, and they never seemed to satisfy him either. He quickly earned a reputation as a dedicated but joyless worker who refused to take any real credit for his accomplishments. Still, those accomplishments were enough to set him up for a career in the army, which he joined in 1905. As the son of a prominent military officer, Hideki Tojo likely had grand ambitions for himself. His father had risen from common foot soldier to general. The pressure for greatness was on. Unfortunately, Tojo watched all of Japan's early 20th century conflicts from the sidelines. In 1905, the Japanese defeated the Russians during the Russo-Japanese War. However, the Navy did most of the fighting. In 1914, history repeated itself. When Japan entered World War I fighting alongside the Allies, the bulk of the fighting was naval. Apart from a short stint in Siberia, Tojo took up routine staff and regimental posts during the war. It's unclear exactly what Tojo thought of not being able to take a more prominent role in combat. But as someone raised with a samurai father, it's possible he felt frustrated that he had achieved so little. If there was any consolation, it was that his dedication didn't go unnoticed. Japan's war ministry was impressed, and in 1919, Captain Tojo was chosen as military attaché to Germany and Switzerland. Tojo spent the next three years in post-war Europe and grew to admire the German military class. Though they had been defeated in the Great War, members of the military were still highly respected. Tojo saw similarities to his own Japanese warrior class. Meanwhile, Tojo did not come to respect the Americans. On his journey back to Japan, Tojo traveled through the U.S., where he saw what he perceived as a nation consumed with materialism and a lack of honor. He concluded that Americans were inherently soft and likely easy to defeat in battle. When the U.S. passed the 1924 Immigration Act, which set immigration quotas for most nationalities, including Japan, Tojo's disgust with the country only grew. He believed that the reason for the act was the superior Japanese work ethic. Japanese farm laborers in the U.S. worked harder than Americans and thus took away their jobs. But if this fueled Tojo's growing disgust toward Americans, it also convinced him that Japan needed to strengthen itself. Like many Japanese officials, Tojo believed that the future of Asia belonged to the Japanese. The only way to achieve that kind of dominance was through a robust military, a thriving economy, and an industrious people. There was work to be done on the home front. Unfortunately, as the 1920s came to a close, the Great Depression interrupted any plans for growth. After the stock market crashed in New York City, Tokyo quickly felt its aftershocks. According to historian James L. McLean, between 1929 and 1931, Japan's exports fell in half, 
its GNP declined by 18% and investments in plants and equipment dropped by one-third. Unemployment became rampant as businesses and banks went bankrupt. Adding to Japan's woes were food shortages. Throughout the early 1930s, crops failed, forcing some families in rural Japan to eat bark off the trees. It was a dire situation. Dire situations often lead to violence, and violence often leads to new opportunities for power. Coming up, Hideki Tojo finds himself in the middle of a factional dispute within the military, which threatens to overthrow the emperor. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Throughout his life, Hideki Tojo craved success and honor in the military. With a prominent general for a father, the pressure to match his achievements was on. Unfortunately, by the start of the 1930s, Tojo had little to show for his ambitions and yearned for an opportunity to fully prove himself in battle. At the same time, Japan was in dire straits. After decades of industrialization and growth, the nation was struck by the global Great Depression. Food shortages and a lack of resources plagued the country. And some within the military concluded that perhaps the best solutions to these problems lay beyond Japan's island borders. Because Japan is a collection of five major islands and numerous smaller surrounding islands, resources are inherently limited. Keenly aware of this, the Japanese government had historically looked to mainland Asia to solve their problem. In 1895, they defeated the Chinese in the First Sino-Japanese War. As a result, Japan began to hold influence over the Korean Peninsula, as well as parts of Manchuria, a northern province of China. Ten years later, Japan gained control of a major railway in Manchuria that had previously belonged to Russia. To protect the railway, the Japanese military formed a security force called the Guangdong Army. And as the years passed, the Guangdong army began to gradually claim more territory surrounding the railway. However, Japan didn't officially control Manchuria, 
and in 1931, two Guangdong officers named Kanji Ishawara and Seishiro Itagaki concluded that perhaps Japan should. Those two officers organized a false flag operation to give the Japanese a reason to invade Manchuria. They detonated dynamite near a Japanese-controlled railway, and they blamed it on the Chinese. The Guangdong army responded by sweeping through Manchuria, swiftly defeating the Chinese. By January 1932, they had reached the Great Wall of China, renamed the region Manchu Kuo, and established a Guangdong army puppet government. Back in Tokyo, opinion over the events was mixed amongst civilian and military leaders. While many agreed in theory that Japan should start influencing Asia, the big fear was Soviet retaliation. The Soviets were disturbed by the invasion and denounced it. But luckily for the Japanese, they refused to engage. It's unclear what Hideki Tojo thought of this rogue act by Itagaki and Ishiwara. Whether he favored or opposed the blatant coup, he kept to himself. In fact, up until the 1930s, Tojo never openly expressed any political views. But that began to change starting in 1935, when a schism within the military suddenly turned bloody. By the mid-1930s, Many, if not all, within the Japanese military had grown disillusioned with the concept of a civilian government, including Tojo. Inspired by the rise of fascism in Europe, a new wave of ultra-nationalism spread throughout the military ranks. However, there was disagreement as to what a future military government would actually look like. On one side was the Kodoha, or Imperial Way Faction, this was a radical group of far-right extremists who took the idea of emperor worship to the limit. They wanted to abolish the democratic civilian government and install a new military government led by the emperor. This meant eliminating, via assassination, any civilian political parties and big business. The other side, the Toseha, or control faction, was more moderate. They were also opposed to democracy and wanted to establish a one-party state, but they aimed to do it by reforming the existing government, not overthrowing it. Hideki Tojo was an outspoken member of the control faction, but wasn't their leader. That title belonged to one of Tojo's good friends, General Tetsuzan Nagata. Nagata made it his mission to suppress the Imperial Way faction's influence. Of course, that made him the faction's enemy number one. On August 12, 1935, Lieutenant Colonel Saburo Aizawa burst into Nagata's office and murdered Nagata with a samurai sword. Aizawa was swiftly arrested, tried, and executed by firing squad. Hideki Tojo greatly mourned the loss of his friend. The humorless careerist had very few friends in life, and Nagata was among those few. If Tojo had any thoughts of revenge, it's possible that the military was looking to stop him before he could act. In October, he was reassigned to Manchukuo, where he was placed in charge of the Kenpei Tai, 
the Guangdong Army's military police. Under Tojo's charge, the Kenpei Tai would become disciplined and ruthless, especially in the wake of the Imperial Way's attempt to overthrow the government. On February 26, 1936, a group of young Imperial Way officers stormed through Tokyo, murdering and terrorizing anyone in their path as they made their way towards various government buildings. The young officers were convinced that the senior officers would join their coup, but they were wrong. When Emperor Hirohito demanded that the rebellion be crushed, the generals listened. Imperial troops immediately surrounded the rebel strongholds and for three days negotiated with the insurgents. The rebel leaders agreed to throw down their arms as long as they were granted the right to commit seppuku, ceremonial suicide. The generals agreed. On February 29th, the incident ended. Over in Manchukuo, however, military officials feared that this was just the beginning of something larger. They worried that the younger officers within the Guangdong army might rise up as well. Many even feared that the de facto leader in Manchukuo, Seishiro Itagaki, would lead the insurgency. After all, Itagaki was one of the two officers who instigated the takeover of Manchuria. Itagaki, however, believed that it was important to cease any revolutionary thoughts as quickly as possible. So he ordered Hideki Tojo, the man at the helm of the military police, to maintain order by any means necessary. As a member of the control faction, Hideki Tojo went above and beyond his duties to purge Manchukuo of the Imperial Way. With the help of spies, he managed to round up just about every single suspected Imperial Way sympathizer in Manchukuo. Once in Tojo's custody, many of these suspects were tortured. It's unclear exactly how many people suffered at Tojo's hand. What we do know is that within days, any thoughts of mutiny or rebellion in Manchukuo were eradicated. Tojo's ability to violently suppress dissent greatly impressed his superior officers. At the beginning of 1937, they promoted him to chief of staff of the Guangdong Army, replacing Seishiro Itagaki. As chief of staff, Tojo held a very important job. Not only was he responsible for overseeing the Guangdong Army, but also the colony's diplomacy. As such, he quickly realized that Manchukuo was in a precarious situation. To the north lay the Soviet Union, and to the south, China. Tojo saw the Soviets as a bigger threat, but neutralizing China was his first priority. At the time, China was in the midst of a civil war. The nationalists, led by Chiang Kai-shek, were facing off against the communists, led by Mao. By 1937, Chiang and the nationalists were winning. Tojo feared that if Chang continued to build up his nationalist army, they might challenge Japanese control in Manchukuo and North China. But if Japan struck now, before the Chinese got any stronger, he was sure they could quickly be defeated. On June 9, 1937, he said as much in a telegram to the government in Tokyo. 
Less than six months into his position as a leader of Manchukuo, he was urging his government to start a war with China. A war that would lead to some of the worst atrocities in human history. Coming up, Japanese imperialism leads to tensions with the United States. Now, back to the story. In 1937, Hideki Tojo was named chief of staff of the Guangdong Army, the de facto rulers of the Japanese puppet state of Manchukuo. For decades, Tojo had sought military honor, and he'd finally received it. Six months into his new role, Tojo informed the government back in Tokyo that he thought it was imperative they go to war with China and ultimately take on the Soviet Union. Strike at the weakling first, then go for the main foe. In fact, Tojo was preaching to the choir. After the attempted coup by the Imperial Way, Emperor Hirohito had allowed his cabinets to fill up with more military officers than civilian politicians. Many of these military officials had, like Tojo, grown weary of the situation in China. And largely, they agreed with Tojo's call for war, with one caveat. They didn't want the Guangdong army taking all the glory. According to author Edwin Hoyt, Tojo's June telegram likely motivated the Imperial Army to act ahead of Tojo. A month later, Imperial soldiers from the Tianjin garrison suddenly engaged with Chinese soldiers just outside Beijing. It's still a mystery who fired the first shots, but regardless, Japan used the incident as the pretense for a full-scale invasion. Three days later, roughly 20,000 troops entered the region. Before long, that number grew to over 150,000. The charismatic Prime Minister Fumimaro Konoe, one of the few civilians in the government, did urge diplomatic peace with Chiang Kai-shek for a while. But when Chiang refused to talk, Konoe began banging the war drums as well. On July 27, 1937, Konoe addressed the Imperial Diet and declared, quote, In sending troops to North China, the government has no other purpose than to preserve the peace of East Asia. With that, Konoe approved the military's request to send three of its divisions to China. Tojo personally led the Guangdong army, along with a few imperial brigades, into a movement against the Chinese. And it would be a success. Soon Japan controlled all of Inner Mongolia. The imperial army blazed through China at a breakneck speed. By December, they captured the nationalist capital of Nanjing. What followed was one of the worst atrocities committed in modern human history. From December to January, imperial troops raped tens of thousands of Chinese civilians and murdered hundreds of thousands of them. The exact number has never been established, but the so-called Rape of Nanjing resulted in the deaths of between 100,000 and 300,000 Chinese. The massacre was ordered by General Iwane Matsui, 
But even today, we still don't quite know why the Imperial Army committed the massacre in Nanjing. Some historians believe it was due to, quote, the oppressive nature of Japan's pre-war military system and emperor-centered nationalist ideology. This combination led to the widespread belief among the Japanese military that the Chinese were inferior and that their lives didn't matter. And with discipline breaking down after their extremely rapid march through the mainland, who was going to stop them? It's unclear what Hideki Tojo thought of the atrocities. At the time, he was nowhere near the city. But considering his lack of reaction as a military leader, it's possible he looked upon the massacre with indifference. If we don't know exactly why the rape of Nanjing happened, though, we do know its effects. In the wake of the violence, more and more Chinese joined the now unified nationalist and communist armies to fight against the Japanese. By spring of 1938, it was obvious that the war wasn't going to be as quick as Tojo and many Japanese leaders had expected. Still, Prime Minister Konoe was determined to see the war through. He decided the best way to make that happen was to switch up his cabinet and fill it with men more familiar with Manchu Kuo. He appointed a new war minister, Seishiro Itagaki, the man responsible for the takeover of Manchuria. And Itagaki knew that there was only one man who could fill the role of vice war minister, Hideki Tojo. Tojo returned to Tokyo in May 1938 for his first political position. Unfortunately, he soon revealed himself to be politically inept. Throughout 1938, the belief among the Japanese military was that tensions in Europe made East Asia ripe for the taking. Britain, France, and Holland were so occupied with Hitler and Mussolini that their Asian colonies could easily be conquered. Thus, they believed that after China was defeated, Japan should turn its focus south and not north towards the Soviet Union. Tojo, however, still feared the Soviets. At the end of November 1938, he held a meeting with some of Japan's leading military industrialists and warned them that war against the Soviets was inevitable. Thus, it would be wise for Japan to be ready for two wars. Word got out that Tojo was beating the war drums against the Soviets, causing an international scandal. The government in Tokyo feared that Tojo's rhetoric might instigate aggression from the Soviets. Luckily for Tojo, War Minister Itagaki convinced the Imperial Diet that this fear was an overreaction. War with the Soviets was not imminent. But Tojo still had to be punished. He was reassigned to Inspector General of the Air Forces. For the next year and a half, Tojo quietly worked to rehabilitate his image in this less exalted position. He oversaw Japan's air services and made sure they'd be in fighting shape when the time finally came to advance Japanese imperialism. Fortunately for him, he didn't have to wait too long. After months of tensions in Europe, Germany's invasion of Poland in September 1939 finally instigated World War II. 
Fighting was initially sparse, but that all changed in May 1940, when Hitler ordered the sudden invasion of Western Europe. Within two months, Holland, Belgium, and France were under Nazi occupation. Shortly after, Germany began a relentless bombing campaign of Britain. For Japan, this meant something very different than it did in Europe. It meant that British, French, and Dutch colonies in East Asia were now defenseless. With this in mind, Prime Minister Konoe was determined to finally end the stalemate in China so they could move on to other battles. Forming a new cabinet, Konoe turned to Hideki Tojo as war minister. Tojo's dedication to his role as inspector, as well as his previous experience within the Guangdong army, had officially redeemed his reputation. Tojo returned to Tokyo and met with Konoe and the new foreign minister, Yosuke Matsuoka. The consensus was that in order to succeed in China, there needed to be greater coordination between the army and the navy. Only then could they execute the bigger project. That bigger project was announced on August 1st. In a press release by Matsuoka, Japan's foreign policy moving forward would be geared towards the creation of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. The goal of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere was simple. Kick Westerners out of Asia and establish a self-sufficient bloc of Asian nations led by the Japanese. This concept was known as Hako Ichiu, or Eight Corners of the World Under One Roof. But before Japan could act on this goal, it needed to shore up its allies. In September 1940, Japanese diplomat Suburo Kurusu traveled to Berlin and signed the Tripartite Pact with Germany and Italy, officially joining the three nations in the Axis Alliance. Tojo overwhelmingly supported the alliance, especially with Germany. He was already an admirer of the German military class, and he knew that having a strong European ally would help Japan's global ambitions. Especially since those ambitions put them in conflict with the United States. Japan's relationship with the United States was tenuous. The U.S. stance was that Japan's naked aggression in China had made a mockery of the territorial status quo. President Franklin Roosevelt was worried that Japan would threaten U.S. interests in Southeast Asia, including the Philippines and Malaysia. The U.S. didn't want to go to war with Japan, so at first they opted for moderate sanctions, mostly on military items. But as war exploded in Europe, it began to look like a stronger stance might be necessary. In the spring of 1940, President Roosevelt moved the American naval fleet to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The U.S. hoped that by showing force, they could prevent Japan from taking advantage of the European chaos to launch an attack. Which, of course, Tojo and the rest of the Japanese government were already in the midst of planning. Japan's leadership spent the rest of 1940 and the start of 1941 trying to figure out which colonies to invade first. Ultimately, they decided on French Indochina, today known as Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. There were two reasons for this choice. 
First, the resources in Indochina were fueling the Chinese armies that were still battling Japan. The move would not only cripple the Chinese, it would also fill the void in supplies for Japan caused by the U.S. sanctions. Second, their new ally Hitler could force Philippe Pétain, the French Nazi puppet in Vichy, France, to hand over Indochina with no resistance. Japan hoped that if Pétain gave the territory away, then the U.S. couldn't claim they had aggressively taken it over. Much of this strategy came from Prime Minister Konoe. He, more than others, feared that stirring the pot would take Japan into war with the United States. Tojo, meanwhile, had accepted that war with America was a possible and acceptable outcome. But he believed that the U.S. wasn't actually ready or willing to go to war over a French colony, so at the end of July 1941, Japanese troops entered Indochina. As it turned out, Tojo's expectations were wrong. Roosevelt was outraged. He froze all Japanese assets in the United States. Britain and Holland did the same. This was quickly followed by an even bigger blow, an oil embargo. For years, the United States had been Japan's leading source for oil. And while Japan had managed to survive the other sanctions, the stoppage of oil threatened the entire country. The oil embargo was practically a declaration of war. On September 6, 1941, Tojo, Konoe, Emperor Hirohito, and other cabinet members gathered for an imperial conference to discuss next steps. The consensus was this. Japan would be willing to leave Indochina and pause their expansion if the U.S. and Britain didn't interfere with China and lifted the economic sanctions. They all agreed that if the United States refused to accept diplomatic negotiations by October 15th, then let it be war. While diplomats reached out to the U.S., the military prepared for war with a simple plan of attack. First, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto would attack Pearl Harbor, striking a decisive blow against America's Navy. With the U.S. incapacitated, Japan would descend on the Dutch East Indies, Malaya, and Burma, three places with plenty of resources, including oil and rubber. By the October 15th deadline, the diplomatic overtures to the U.S. had failed. The Americans would only lift sanctions if Japan gave up its territory in China, which Japan would not do. To the Japanese military, this meant there was only one solution. But Konoe remained apprehensive, with the naval minister expressing his views that Japan couldn't win a prolonged war Konoe wondered if a deadline extension could give them time for more negotiations. Tojo, along with the rest of the army, argued that time had passed. Still, Konoe refused to be the one to send his nation to war, not if victory wasn't guaranteed. On October 15, 1941, he resigned, which automatically dissolved the entire cabinet. Two days later, while cleaning out his office, 56-year-old Hideki Tojo was summoned to the royal palace. 
Upon his arrival, Emperor Hirohito bluntly informed Tojo that he was now prime minister. Tojo had always remained consistent on Japanese domination in China. He'd also been a ruthless leader of the Guangdong army, and the emperor needed someone who wouldn't waver. Hideki Tojo accepted the position. He was bound by his duty to the emperor, and serving at such a high level was an honor. But accepting the job had one caveat. Hirohito wanted Tojo to try for peace one final time. Perhaps a change in leadership would entice the U.S. to negotiate. The fate of Japan suddenly rested entirely in Hideki Tojo's hands. Could he secure peace with America? Or would he send his country into another war? Thanks for listening to Dictators. On the next episode, the hosts of Conspiracy Theories will take an in-depth look at the lead-up to Pearl Harbor from the perspective of the United States. Then we'll come back to finish Hideki Tojo's side of the story. Among the many sources we used, we found Tojo, The Last Bonsai by Courtney Brown extremely useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.